0: Hey, you guys get to hear from God's Word this morning. It's a great gift. I hope you you long to hear from God's Word. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 4 as we continue our look at meals with Jesus. And we come to maybe the most profound meal. Hear God's Word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Talk about an understatement. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. All right, well, we are looking at meals, meals with Jesus, and Jesus does significant portions of his ministry around meals. He says some of his most profound teaching around meals, some of his most profound activities and kingdom work is done around meals. What we come to today is the anti-meal, the antithesis of a meal with Jesus. In actuality, though, while there isn't appear to be much of a meal going on here, in fact, quite the opposite, what we have here is Jesus finds himself with a feast in the midst of fasting. Jesus is saying, and what is being communicated in this text, at least as it has to do with our particular series, as we're looking at the perspective of this of this passage is that in fasting you find a feast. You find a feast. And so this morning we're gonna talk about fasting. I bet you woke up this morning, and that's what you were really excited to hear about. Man, you know what I would really love to hear about? This would really just this would put the shimmy in my spiritual life if someone would talk to me about not eating. Fasting. One pastor put it this way, it is fraught with suspicion, it is seemingly archaic, and it appears for us to be reserved for the hyper-spiritual. In fact, the whole question of fasting, which has historically been a significant part of the disciplines of the spiritual life in the church, the whole question of fasting has disappeared from our lives. We don't even think about it or even consider fasting. I mean, when was the last time you considered skipping a meal on purpose that didn't involve you trimming an inch or two from your waistline? How often have you thought about fasting? Or some of you, have you even heard about fasting? Some of you may even question this, is fasting even a Christian activity? We know that fasting has been a universal religious practice, Confucius practice, practiced fasting. Muslims practice fasting every year during their holy celebration of Ramadan. And not just religious, but philosophers as well. Plato and Aristotle commended fasting. Political leaders in the last hundred years have promoted fasting. Gandhi famously fasted. And even medical professionals, the the, the, the one who started traditional medicine as we know it, Hippocrates, commended fasting for your health. Now, there is no command in the Bible to fast. There's never a command. In fact, the Bible is careful to warn us about people who advocate abstaining from certain foods. And in fact, there was, Jesus tells a parable that involved fasting, and it goes like this. There was once two men. One fasted twice a week, and the other said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And only one went away justified. And guess what? It was not the one who was fasting. But while Jesus may never command fasting, he invites us to fast. In fact, Jesus assumes that we will fast. In Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen to eighteen, and that Jesus has a few words in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, his most famous of sermons, and he commends fasting to us. In fact, he says this: When you fast, when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, and he doesn't say you must fast, but he says when you fast, Jesus assumes that right along with prayer and the reading of God's word, he assumes that his disciples, that those who follow him, will participate in this activity of fasting. Fasting is the deliberate giving up of something. Most often we think of it in terms of food, but you can give up other things. But it is the deliberate giving up of something in order to express to God your desire for him and or to experience God more fully. That's what fasting is. It is the giving up of something in order to express to God your desire and hunger for Him and or to experience more deeply a delight in Jesus. And if we are awakened to seeing fasting as the joy that it can bring as a means of God's grace, it will strengthen and sharpen your Godward affections. It could be a tool in your toolbox for growing you as a believer and actually be a means of increasing your joy in Jesus. And so Jesus is going to show us how to fast today. He shows us why to fast, why we can fast. So we're going to look at this. If you'd like a hat rack for where we're going this morning, this is what we're going to look at. Jesus is going to show us some of the occasions for fasting then he's going to show us the victory or his victory by fasting. And then lastly, we'll look at are the reason for us to fast. First, let's look at the various occasions for fasting. The scriptures include many forms of fasting. There's both personal fasting and there's communal fasting, public and private fasting, congregational and national fasting, regular and occasional fasting, partial and absolute fasting. All kinds of fasting we see in the Old Testament. Donald Whitney, in his book on the spiritual disciplines and the historic spiritual uh, disciplines of the Christian life, actually, in his study and survey of the scriptures, sees 10 different types of occasions in which the people of God fast. And most often, you'll see people fast because of seasons of prayer. They fast because of a desperate need for God to provide for them in the midst of a dire situation. Some fast in seasons of grief and sorrow. For example, when the people of Israel, when Esther is actually the queen in Babylon and Persia, there is a edict that goes out via the second in rule and command over that country and over all the world, a guy named Haman, that all the Jews are to be slaughtered. And what happens? Esther calls for her people to fast, to weeping, to rend their garments in their grief, in their calling for God to help. Many will fast as a part, we see instances of fasting as a part of repentance, as a means of displaying to God the sincerity of your cries for mercy and for forgiveness. We see this, David does this. When he has sinned with Bathsheba, and and God comes and declares to him what his discipline is gonna be, he goes before the Lord and he cries out to him, and he will not eat, eat, because he longs for God to be merciful, many are fast as well before they take on a great undertaking, a large ministry. Well, we see a couple of these in particular in this text. Two, Jesus shows us at least two occasions, and this text in particular, for when we can fast or when we ought would be a great and opportune time, an occasion to fast. And the first of those is Jesus fasts as a preparation for ministry. It's his preparation for ministry. What has happened right before Jesus goes into the wilderness, he is actually says that the Spirit thrusts him into the wilderness. It is the Spirit who leads them there. And right before that, though, is Jesus' baptism. His baptism is Jesus' setting aside, the Father setting him aside for his earthly ministry. And so here at the very beginning, just as Jesus has been ordained and set aside and commissioned by the Father for his work with the disciples and his three years of teaching and preaching ministry, the first thing he does in preparation for ministry is to go and not eat for 40 days. To go and fast and to pray. Now that is really something Jesus didn't go in carb load like he was getting ready for a marathon. Jesus did quite the opposite. He said, I do not need in these 40 days, as I prepare for ministry, to fill myself up with food. I need to fill myself up in time with the Father, crying out to him, preparing myself for the temptations and the challenges ahead. And so I'd ask you this. Do you have an enormous undertaking that you are getting ready to, to go about Are you getting ready to take on a ministry or a particular task? It doesn't have to be that grand and that great because many of you are needy. You know that the things that God has called you to tomorrow and on Tuesday are beyond you. Perhaps those of you who are dating or engaged, perhaps premarital counseling should involve a season of prayer and fasting. I mean, marriage is kind of a big deal, right? It is ministry and it's death. So maybe before you make that commitment, you should cover it in prayer. Perhaps before you're getting ready to have a child, you should involve fasting. Perhaps getting ready for a mission trips, or a new semester at school, or whether you're a teacher, or a student, or a homeschool mom. Perhaps as you get ready for this form of ministry, perhaps fasting. When you start a new job, as God is calling you into a new place or moving to a new neighborhood, perhaps it is a time for a season of fasting, of ministry that God is calling you into. Perhaps you're getting ready to go into the war called a family holiday or a vacation, where you know you're going to be stuck in a van or a car or in a beach house with a bunch of people who complain at you 24-7, and you need the filling of the Holy Spirit, not only not to kill people, but to be a ministry to them. I have no earthly idea where that would come in my own mind. (laughs) Perhaps the commitment to share the gospel with a friend or neighbor. Is the call that we've been making above hospitality feel like too much for you? It is too much for you. So perhaps you might bathe that ministry in fasting and in prayer. You know, the biblical illustration in the the Acts in the New Testament is when missions begins with fasting. The church in Antioch is wondering what they should do next. The church has been pushed out, not of their own volition, but because of persecution in Jerusalem. And so they begin to scatter um, to the further reaches of Judea and Samaria and the various parts of the Gentile world. But they have not gone very far. And they get to Antioch and they go, what do we do now? And so they spend a time, a season of time, worshiping and fasting, it says. And what is the result of their worshiping and season of fasting? They determine that they need to send out Paul and Barnabas. And thus begins the proclamation of the Gospels to all people, tribes, and tongues. You are here today. Because... Brothers and sisters in Christ, 2,000 years ago, fasted and prayed and sought the discernment of the will of God and sent missionaries out because of it. The Bible says that whenever Paul would go into cities, he would establish elders. And it says in Acts 14 that when he would do that, that he would always do it with the laying on of hands, with prayer and fasting before they determined who they were going to set aside for leadership in God's church. Fasting was so much a part of the early church, they just assumed it's what God's people would do, just like Jesus assumed it's what his people would do. We have to begin to understand this, and I do want to, and this is a polemical point. I am concerned... And this is where this began, I have a deeper point than this, but I am concerned at this, that in the modern age of the Christian, that we have begun to write books about savoring good food, and about celebrating, and in a world in which we have decided that it's okay to drink alcohol, and that good food is good for us, and that these things are okay, because God has blessed them, and we should say that, but that we have lost our edge as a warlike people. And therefore, we're a people who have gotten fat and flabby spiritually because we look more forward to our various parties as Christians together instead of having a more light mentality that says we should act like we're in a war. You know what people do when they're in a war? This past week, we we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the landing of the the Allied soldiers on D-Day on the beaches in Normandy. Well, you know how it proceeded that landing for years in advance in America? Food rationing. For years, the people of America, under the leadership of our government, said, we will go without certain things. Why? Because we have an enormous task, and if we're going to send hundreds and thousands and millions of our sons onto the beaches to take back this place and to take back Europe and parts of Asia, then we're going to have to give something up. That we're in a war. And so Americans didn't build cars. They built tanks. And they gave up certain foods. And they turned in various materials to be turned into weapons and food for their soldiers. In fact, the most amazing thing happened after the war. That Europe was in tatters. Was, people were going to starve. In fact, more people perhaps were going to die after the war because of starvation across western and eastern Europe. But for this, that the United States government determined that we will continue to ration even though the war is over so that we may send more food to western and eastern Europe. And because of that, millions were saved from disease and starvation. Why? Because America was in a warlike footing and said, we have a mission and we'll give up something and we'll participate in this. Do you understand that you're in a war? That God has called you into something grand and great and that maybe we should act like it? That there may be seasons that we need to prepare for the task that God has given to us with seasons of prayer And fasting. But not only does Jesus uh, pray in regards to his ministry, but we also see this that Jesus fasts as a means of battling temptation. Perhaps the greatest ministry, the greatest battle that you need to be prepared for is the battling of what goes on inside your own cravings. Jesus is about to go to war, and so he prepares for war by fasting. But notice this is the time in the wilderness. It's it's just a season of preparing for future temptation. It is in and of itself a battling of temptation. Jesus does not just prepare for war by fasting. He does battle with temptation by fasting. Let me ask you this. Have you ever grown so heartsick over a particular habitual sin in your life that you have said, that's it. I need God so desperately and so dearly that I will give up food for a week in order to pray over this. Paul says, he looks at, his, at the people in one of his epistles and says, you have not gone so far as to shed blood, to shed blood in your battle against some temptation. Well, not only have many of us not been willing to shed blood in order to resist sin, most of us have not been willing to give up lunch in order to resist sin. And we are called to actually be a people who fight battles against our cravings and our longings. And so we should actually use fasting as a means of dealing with our temptations. Fasting is, is, is a means of engaging with the temptations right in front of us. It's also a training ground for saying no. Did you know that? Fast is a means of practicing saying no to the flesh so that you may say yes to something better. You practice saying no to the flesh so that you may say yes to the Lord's. Listen, you, you, you wouldn't be able to go play a game without, or play a musical instrument without practicing it. And yet, for some reason, as Christians, we have this arrogance that we think that we can simply just walk into various aspects of our life and go, we'll just kind of practice. I assume that I'll be able to resist the flesh in this place. And actually, you could use some practice in this. And we have been taught, our culture tells us that if it feels good, then do it. If it tastes good, then eat it. We deny ourselves nothing, but what this has led to is a spiritually shabby, physically and spiritually flabby people. That our physical conditions represent our spiritual conditions. Think about the training regiment of sporting heroes. They beat their bodies into submission. And so Paul actually says to do the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I treat myself like I'm going to safeguard my soul. I'm going to go into this training regiment so that I may now not be found wanting. I'm going to discipline my body and keep it under control so that it may be used for ministry. St. Basil the Great in his... I know you may not have ever heard of St. Basil the Great. Basil is not simply just an herb in your garden. So you probably actually went by basil. St. Basil the Great actually says this in his homily on fasting. He said, Fasting is a good safeguard for the, for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the valiant, and a gymnasium for athletes. Fasting repels temptation. It is the comrade of watchfulness. In war it fights bravely, and in peace it teaches stillness. And our fasting does good things for us because it also not only does it actually teach you to say no, fasting will actually heighten the senses of temptation in your life. It heightens our sense of need for God's provision in the midst of temptation. It actually, we're saying, most times temptation is most difficult when it surprises us. That's often why it defeats us. But in fasting, what we are saying is this. In what Jesus is doing, and led by the Spirit, he says, I will actually move right towards it. And I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this intentionally as I fast to engage with these temptations in my life. I'm going to do battle consciously and intentionally with these temptations. And fasting can reveal to us reveal to us the depths of our idolatry. It reveals the tempting cravings that rest within our hearts. We have no idea how addicted we are to so many things because we've never stopped to try to resist them. Some people might say, I've actually had someone say this to me, that when, I feel like it's actually a distraction to fast because when I fast, I struggle so much with the hunger pains in my stomach that I have a hard time praying. And I want to say, yeah, that's the point. It's showing you something. It's showing you that, you think, uh, that you're thinking how, off, on how hungry I am. It's showing you how much you depend upon a fix every couple hours of something being placed in your mouth. That you need that more than you think think you need Jesus. You realize, begin to realize how much you depend upon food. And how your body has been trained to get a dietary fix. Or perhaps for you it's not food. Some of you, if you actually give up your phone or social media, would realize you don't really understand what your fingers have been doing all day. That you've lost the ability of not just doing this all day long. Tap, tap, every once in a while scroll, scroll, tap, tap, that you have a digital fix, or you scroll to another travel website, or you text another person, for some of you who are addicted to being in shape, you run another mile, that is not just, what, you, what, you, what you'll experience is, you'll begin to see your behavior, you struggle with these things, and at first you'll say, well, my blood pressure is low, but what you begin to realize is you depend on foods, fasting will reveal what is in your heart. How you look to food to keep your attitude straight, to keep you happy, to keep you joyful, to help you deal with your kids, to help you deal with your spouse, to deal with your coworkers. Richard Foster put it like this about how strong fasting is in regards to revealing our hearts. He said this in the celebration of discipline. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed immediately. David writes, I humbled my soul with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we will realize that we are angry because we actually have an angry spirit within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ Jesus. Fasting makes you weak so that you might actually turn to the one who is strong. Fasting removes the medication that you've been depending on food and TV and exercise and social media, the things that our souls cling to but have actually left us discontent and craving for more. It shows us what we're slaves to. Are we most hungry for food or are we most needy and hungry for God? Jesus says, What do you most need? Man shall not live by bread alone but by the very word of God. Does your life exemplify that? Perhaps you need to fast to put your life in the back proper priorities. Jesus doesn't just give us the occasions of fasting, though. Jesus shows us how he actually wins for us victory in his fasting. Jesus actually wins for us victory in his fasting. I want to show you something very interesting. In Matthew chapter 4, there is, a, there is a, a mimicking of something from the Old Testament here. In Matthew 4, each of the temptations, they, we didn't read them all, but each of the temptations, the devil is going to come to Jesus with three temptations. And in every single one of those temptations, Jesus is going to respond to the devil with a quote from God's Word. But Jesus doesn't meander too far around the Old Testament when he quotes from God's Word. He quotes from three chapters. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, you of course know what Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 says, right? No, we don't, do we? It says that Jesus, the tempter came to him, and Jesus responded this way. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Not Deuteronomy 8. He said, the evil one comes and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered. It says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is no coincidence that Jesus is responding from Deuteronomy 8. There is actually a parallel going on between what is going on in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and what is going on in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the people of God in Israel are where? They're wandering in the wilderness. God has led the people of God into the desert, and they will travel around the desert for how long? 40 years. And in those 40 years, God will provide for them. And in those 40, in those time of going out into the desert, what's one of the first things that Israel complains and cries out to God for? We are hungry. We are hungry. Here's the parallel. Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's led by God out into the wilderness. He's going to go out for 40, the wilderness, Israel goes out for 40 years. Jesus goes out for 40 days. And here we see that Jesus is humbled and he's tested and he is tempted just as Israel was. And Jesus hungered. So the question is this, why is Jesus fasting in Matthew 4? It's not simply to defeat temptation, and it's not simply to prepare himself for ministry, but Jesus is doing something grander and greater in Matthew chapter four. Jesus is fasting for you. He is fasting on your behalf. In other words, what I want you to see is this is that Jesus is very consciously identifying himself, the people of God, in the wilderness. That we often talk about, and you actually hear it in that last song we sang, I am bound, I am bound for Jordan's stormy banks. I am bound for the promised land. What is that, that, is that allusions to in the scriptures? It's the Exodus journey to a promised land. It's, we think of our spiritual life as 40 years wandering in the desert longing for heaven. And what Jesus is saying is this, is I am consciously identifying with you. I have come from heaven down to earth to do in the wilderness what you could never do. That while Adam and Eve were in a perfect garden, they weren't in a wilderness, and yet they could not resist food. And while Israel was there and they had all of my provision, and yet they complained and they cried out and they did not trust me. Jesus says, I will be the one who identify with you and I will walk through the wilderness as you should have done. Jesus says, I am the one who is with you. And in fact, I am one of you. You see, Jesus wasn't just identifying with us. He was succeeding where we fail. Jesus stands, comes to save us from something far greater than the Egyptians and to take us to a far greater promised land than Canaan. But he he comes to take us to heaven, to draw us through our 40 years here on this earth and our wilderness wanderings and bring us home to heaven. In other words, Jesus' fasting was not just a preparation for testing. His was actually taking part in testing. And Jesus going into the wilderness and Jesus fasting and facing temptation was a core part of his ministry on our behalf. Because where you fail in temptation, where you don't look to God for provision in the midst of your hunger and your cravings, Jesus perfectly looks to the Father. And the question is will he pass the test? And he does. And the test is seen in the portion of scripture from which he is quoting. Here's what Jesus says. The test comes to him. The evil one comes to him and says, Jesus, you're really hungry. So let's turn some stones into bread. Take care of things yourself. Take, care of, take control of your life. Don't trust the Father to provide. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 where it says this. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you understand what Jesus is trying to communicate here? He's saying manna came from where? We have this tendency, and the people of Israel did this as well. We take all of God's good gifts, and instead of looking to the provider, we look at the good gifts that he has provided as our trust. Jesus is saying this, and Deuteronomy 8 is saying this, that you have misunderstood the, the giving of manna. You looked at it, and you began to trust in the manna. What is manna? No one knows what manna is, and yet you're trusting in it. What he's saying is this, is that you have a God who is so trustworthy, who will provide so abundantly that he will make up new food groups that you've never even heard of to provide for your needs. So why do you care about manna? Why do you care about physical bread? Simply trust in what God is going to provide for you. So we must learn, it says, to depend on God and his provision and his words. So that's what the test that Jesus is facing. The people of Israel had the test. Did they pass the test? God said, "Will you trust in manna, will you trust in bread, or will you trust in the one who can provide it? Which one do you trust in? Did they pass the test? No. You know how we know that? Because God gave him a man, and he said this: "Hey, listen, I'm going to provide you daily bread. So when you go out and get manna, I want you to trust me that the manna is going to be there tomorrow. So what I will what you cannot do is you cannot gather more than one day's full of manna. What do they do? They immediately go out and they do what? They fill their tents up with manna. They hoard for themselves manna. They become gluttons of manna. And what happens? The manna rots in their tents and it rots in their stomachs. They don't pass the test. Why? Because they look to the gift and not to the giver. They look to the bread and not to the true bread of God. But what we have here is Jesus who passes the test. Jesus comes in, he fasts, and in his fasting, he declares this, that what I need and what I want more than a bread, actual physical bread, is I want God the Father. That my strength is found in him. And in this, Jesus was victorious. So where you fail to trust, Jesus trusted. It was a test of his deepest appetite Did he want bread or did he want God? Did he want to do God the Father's will? And he chose God the Father's will. See, it's actually through fasting that Jesus actually becomes the means of your salvation. That Jesus says, I will not take up my own means. I will take up the means of the Father. And you know what the means of the Father was? The means of the Father was fasting and it was suffering and it was a cross. And because Jesus was willing to take up deprivation, we might have fullness in God's. And that leads us to our third thing we want to say this morning, and that's the reason for fasting. The ultimate reason to fast is this. Why should you fast? Why should you give things up for a season or a period of time? It comes down to this. You should fast because you want God, because you hunger and you crave so desperately for God. God. There are all kinds of occasions. We see at least 10 of them in the Old and the New Testament. All kinds of occasions for fasting. Grief and needing provision and temptation and repenting and about to move into a great and grand ministry. But in the end, all true Christian fasting comes down to this. The ultimate reason for fasting flows because in these occasions, you have come down to this core longing that I am desperate for God. You become desperate when you're hungry, right? If you have no food for days and weeks, you become desperate for food. And that is the image that is being given here, that you would be a people who is desperate for God, like the deer in Psalm 42, who would pant for the living gods. So you fast because you recognize this, that your grief is so deep that only God himself could heal your soul. The occasion may be grief, but God is the healer of your soul. You recognize that your need for provision is so severe and so desperate that only a God who owns all the stores of heaven could provide for you. That the temptation of your life is so strong and so powerful that you recognize only God, only God, I'm desperate for him to defeat this sin. And when you realize that your sin is so grievous and so destructive that only God himself could forgive, and you say, I need this God. That's the one I long for. Let me give you an illustration of what this would look like, where you move from occasion that leads to fasting, that leads to a heart that says, I need God more than anything else. And 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there is a vast army that is coming up against Israel. And at the time, the king of Israel is King Jehoshaphat. And he decides that they need provision. They need God's help. They have no chance against this army. They're gonna be crushed. And so Jehoshaphat calls for a season of prayer and fasting. It says to seek the Lord for help. But I want you to hear Jehoshaphat's prayer. It is the epitome of a Christian's fasting kind of prayer. He says this, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? That's the enemies who are coming to crush them. And he says this, For we are powerless. In fasting, you recognize that you're weak and you're powerless. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do. We don't know how you're going to provide. He's in fact, he stops asking for provision. He simply says, I'm looking to you. You are who we need. You are who we want. And so in all these circumstances, you fast because you recognize that your ultimate need beyond the need for comfort or provision or forgiveness or help is that you need God himself who is behind all those things, who undergirds all those things. And this is actually the wellspring of Christian fasting. When we hunger for God, when we ache, when we long, when we're starved for him, that will lead you to fast. When you want him so bad, when you say fasting is the embodiment of looking at God and holding up a piece of bread and tossing it aside and saying, God, this is how much I want you. This is how much I want to experience you. I would rather have you, Lord, than I would rather have food. Lord, we hunger for you and so we fast. This is how much we desire you. You. Fasting is the result of a heart that it knows that it's sustained by the word of God and God himself alone. Therefore, in experiences of fasting, we are not so much abstaining from food as we are what? Feasting on God. This is why this may be the profound, most profound meal that Jesus serves. Because while he doesn't eat anything for 40 days, what is he feasting upon? Fasting is the choice to feast upon God as the one who is your sustenance alone. You know, Jesus says this. He actually gives us the same example. Later on, he's doing ministry to a woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman. He has this back and forth with her. And his disciples go off to find food in the village. And they come back and they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we brought you some lunch. And Jesus says, I have food that you do not know of. And they go, wait, who brought Jesus a sandwich. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The food, my food is to do the will that my father sent me to accomplish. This is not a clever metaphor, but it's a genuine reality that Jesus' very lifeblood, his food was to do what God called him to do. Does this describe you? When was the last time you longed for Jesus' appearing in this world? When you looked around and you saw the heartache of this world and you said, Come, Lord Jesus, and I will fast and I will plead with you because I want you to come to this world and make all things new. When was the last time your spiritual say could describe you as hungry and famished before the Lord? That you cried out for him? The question for us is not mainly whether we fast. The question is this. It's whether we actually hunger and desire for God. So let me cast this in sharp relief and sharp comparison. Why do we not fast? Why do we not even talk about fasting in our churches? Why is this discipline so absent from our church and from our life? It means it's because we're getting filled up in so many other places. That in the midst of heartache and grief and difficulty in your marriage and relationships, you know where you find your food? It's processing with friends. Or you're filled up by the next challenge. Just going to move on to the next thing. Or you get filled up by the next fun event on the calendar. Or you get filled up by the next vacation that is coming down the pike. Or you get filled up by time alone with a good book. These are things that you know, some of you need to say this, I'm going to fast from time alone. I'm going to fast from exercise because I get so irritable when I exercise, when I don't exercise, that I need to experience what it would be like to be that dependent on God. Some of you need to fast from food. Some of you may need to fast from some sort of social activities because you realize you're dependent, you're addicted upon them. We are not sick with longing for God. We are too content with filling our lives with the good things that God has provided in this world. And because we have filled ourselves so much, we have been stuffed to the gills to where our cheeks look like they're going to explode. We look that bloated on the things of this world that we don't have space for God. And people say, we don't fast because we don't know about it. Well, now you do. I've taken that excuse away. Or maybe you say, well, how can one fast in a place that is surrounded by golden arches? See, the problem is we are too much at home here in this world, and we have made the mark of a great Christian the mark of comfort, of blessing, when in reality, what we would see is this, is that the mark that you have been blessed as a Christian is that you have a holy famine in your soul, that you have a longing and an ache that says, I starve for the Lord." And so we must put it starkly in these stark words, the real reason why we don't fast and the real reason we don't like to talk about fasting is this, it's because we don't desire God. We are too easily satisfied with the taste and the morsels of the things of this world. Do you see the place of fasting in the Christian life though? Fasting in this gluttonous, consumeristic, fast food, microwave, internet, must-have-it-now world is our declaration to ourselves and to the world and to our God that today, in this place, we refuse to be comforted by anything else except for God himself. That you and you alone, we said it in Psalm 73, didn't we? You and you alone will be my portion of my cup. You you alone will be my strength. You're the one that I long for and that we would have a holy discontent that the cravings of this world can never satisfy.